We're getting back into Job this morning, and uh, Lord willing, we'll conclude next week. So we're going to pick up in chapter 32, but it might be just helpful since we've been out of the book a couple of weeks just to quickly review where we've been so far. In the first sermon, we looked at the first couple of chapters that set up the book of Job, what's going on in Job's life. We meet a man who is righteous and blameless and holy and is pursuing the Lord himself and with his family, and all of a sudden, we learn through the work of Satan that an incalculable amount of suffering comes upon him in a period of time and robs him of his family and his fortune and his health, and he begins to despair and question God and wonder what's going on. We looked at his life and his loss and his lament in our first sermon. In the second sermon, we considered the bulk of the book. We looked at chapters 3 through chapters 31 and saw Job's interaction with his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and the conversation that goes on back and forth between them as they try to interpret what God is doing in Job's life, why this suffering has come upon him. And the conclusion from Job's friend's perspective is Job must have sinned in his life before this suffering ever came. Otherwise, why would God send it? It's this retaliation theology that seems to occupy their thinking. If you were a good person, God would be good to you. But you're having bad happen to you, so you must be a bad person. Job, admit it. And Job continually responds over the course of these chapters, I did nothing wrong. Am I sinless? No. But am I sincerely seeking to deal with my sin, walk faithfully with the Lord? Yes. So this suffering cannot be at the hands of God owing to my sin. We learned from looking at those chapters what believers actually need in their suffering, the friendship, the presence, the empathy of close companions. We see what believers often get in their suffering, which is blame or shame or interpretations of their suffering or exasperation with their suffering. And then we also considered what believers already have, namely access to God, hope in God, and compassion from God. And this shows up in the, in, in the form of a new character that we meet in these chapters. He's obviously been with them. He's been with Eliphaz, he's been with Zophar, he's been with Bildad, he's been with Job. His name is Elihu. And he's been listening in on all of this interaction between Job and his three friends, and he's been hesitant to speak so far. And he's t- we're told that because he's likely the youngest, and so he's giving preference to the older, wiser men to speak into this situation, But here we find Elihu and him giving a slightly different emphasis, filling in some of the gaps that have been missing in the conversation to begin with. So we need to answer this question on the front end. Why why should we listen to Elihu? I mean, he, he covers five chapters, verses chapters 32 all the way to the end of chapter 37. Isn't he just another counselor like Job's three friends? No, he isn't. And we're going to look at that this morning. I want to consider three aspects of what we see in Elihu's interaction with Job and Job's three friends. We're going to see, first of all, Elihu's righteous role. Elihu comes on the scene after a very long section that includes three cycles of speeches from Job's friends, along with Job's responses to each of them. Just before Elihu speaks, 
Job has exhausted himself with one final impassioned speech. It's his longest speech in the entire book of Job. It lasts roughly three chapters in chapters 29 to 31. And he just lays it all out in frustration and difficulty as he tries to get through to his friends that this is not happening because he sinned. But not only is Job exhausted, Job's three friends are exhausted. They have thrown all of their ammunition to try to get Job to see the reasons for his suffering. And they have been continually rebuffed by Job as he engages in relentless self-defense. And so what we get when we get to chapter 32 is something of a stalemate. You've got an exhausted sufferer and an exhausted group of people who are his friends who are trying to help him and get through to him. And it's going nowhere. And then Elihu speaks. Now, I want you to see that Elihu is different from the previous three friends in several ways. I've got four of them. Four reasons for why Elihu occupies a particularly righteous role in his interaction with Job and his three friends. First of all, Elihu is presented as an independent third party who doesn't take either Job's side or the side of Job's friends. Let's read again verses 2 and 3 of chapter 32. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. So as Elihu is listening to all of this, listening to Job extensively defend himself, listening to his three friends relentlessly accuse him, he doesn't take either side. He's actually presented as someone who's impartial, who's been listening to all this information and doesn't side with either Job or with his friends. In fact, is angry with both of them for different reasons. He's angry with Job because Job is justifying himself instead of God. And he's angry at Job's friends because they are continually declaring Job to be in the wrong, even though he isn't. Elihu's role reminds me of the angel of the Lord in the book of Joshua. Remember Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, where we read, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am a commander of the army of the Lord. Listen, righteousness requires impartiality. It requires listening to someone and listening and benefiting and hearing both sides. And yet where sin is being committed on both sides, you don't take a side. You take the Lord's side. You're there to represent the Lord. And that's what we see in Job's life, especially respect in respect to Elihu. Second reason Elihu is righteous here is Elihu's speech covers six consecutive chapters, relatively uninterrupted, as opposed to the back and forth nature of Job's interaction with his other friends. Elihu is allowed four uninterrupted speeches. Chapter 32, verses 6 through chapter 33, verse 33 chapter 34, chapter 35, and chapter 36 into chapter 37. 
He's given these four long speeches that are uninterrupted by jo- neither by Job nor by Job's friends. He engages carefully and thoughtfully with all that he has heard from Job and all that he has heard from Job's friends. That's another reason we should listen to him in a different way. Third, Job never offers a response to Elihu like he does to the other three friends, despite Elihu's challenge for him to do so. We read in Job 33, 32, Elihu's challenge to Job. If you have any words, answer me, speak, for I desire to justify you. And Job doesn't respond. Now, is it possible that Job is just exhausted and doesn't want to respond? Sure, that could definitely be the case. But we also know from the book of Job that Job never missed an opportunity to answer his friends. And yet he is silent after Elihu speaks. Now, perhaps he is just tired of talking. He has been doing a lot of that in the previous moments. But Elihu does not engage in the simple argument that his friends have, which is, you're afflicted because you sinned. Rather, Elihu comes along and says, Job, it's not that you have suffered because you have sinned. You have sinned in your suffering. That's the unique take on it. He says, listen, Job, this is not happening to you for something you did in the past. But in the moment in which you have suffered, you have sinned during this time, brother. You have spoken out of line. Elihu comes along and gives this unique perspective on Job. Despite censoring Job at times for what he says, he doesn't believe Job is a total hypocrite. His tone is distinctly meek and pastoral as opposed to the often carnal and accusatory tone that Job's friends eventually begin taking with him. Fourthly and finally, Job, or sorry, God vindicates Elihu by not rebuking him as he does Job's other friends. We read in Job 42, verse 7, which we'll get to, Lord willing, next week, when God comes on the scene. We read, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Timonite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. Why not three friends? Why does the Lord not incriminate Elihu as well? Well, it's because Elihu didn't speak entirely the way Job's other three friends spoke. Notice that while God has a response to the way Job's friends spoke to him, he does not have a response to Elihu. He never rebukes Elihu for what he says. And he never includes him in the rebuke that he gives to Job's friends. In fact, as soon as Elihu is finished with his fourth speech, God comes in and picks up where he left off proceeding along the same lines and going further. So that, that's why I believe we are to listen to Elihu in a way that's unique to the way we listen to Job. He is present, or listen to Job's friends. He is presented as a righteous mediator, as someone who has come to bring sanity to this insane discussion that has been going on between Job and his three friends. Now we're going to look at what Elihu actually says. So that's Elihu's righteous role. Secondly, Elihu's reasonable rebuke. Elihu's reasonable rebuke. 
Now, Elihu clearly thinks that Job has been wrong in some of what he says. We read in chapter 32, verse 1, So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. He's angry at Job because of what Job has said in justifying himself rather than God, which means in part the reason that Elihu is upset with Job is that in making himself out to be the righteous one in the whole scheme of things, he is, whether he intends to or not, implying that God isn't. So Job has said some pretty awful things along the way. A number of places, the pride and the arrogance of his heart have been brought to the surface, and his overall attitude has progressively gotten worse. Now, some of that is understandable, right? Job has suffered a great deal. But, brothers and sisters, even though we suffer a great deal, it doesn't give us the right to sin a great deal in the midst of our suffering. I think of what happens sometimes when you leave a glass of water just sitting kind of on the table or on a, on a desk for a long period of time, and that, that water could have been sitting there a little while, and when you look at the water itself, you don't see any impurity to it, but if you were to jiggle that water around or shake it a little bit, you'd start to see some stuff come up like it's on the bottom or things that have been in the water, and that's something about what's happening to Job here. When you look at him on the surface as a still glass of water, uninterrupted by suffering, he looks really good. He's got, got it all together spiritually, doing well at work, managing his family well, things are going well in his home, kids are happy. But when you shake that glass up, you see all that stuff start to come up that you couldn't see before. And that's sort of what is happening over the course of Job's interaction with his friends. Just a few comments that he's made should shock us. Think about Job 13, verses 23 and 24. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Brothers and sisters, that's disrespectful. He's challenging God to say, prove to me that I'm a sinner. Show me what I've done wrong. All you do is treat me like your enemy. There's a fine line between genuine lament, which Job has done, righteous lament, and where it begins to accuse out of pride and arrogance. Job 31, 35. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Calling the Almighty your adversary? So what does Elijah teach us about how Job has sinned in his suffering? He specifically addresses Job along two lines of thought. So this is his reasonable rebuke. He wants to bring two key points to his attention. First of all, God is not silent in your suffering and he is not ignoring you. God is not silent in your suffering and he is not ignoring you. See, Job believed that God owed him an explanation. Job sought to bring a charge against God, and he's frustrated because God refused to answer him. And Job found God's silence maddening. 
Job found God's silence, his unwillingness to answer his charges, as utterly frustrating and infuriating. Elihu's main argument is then, first of all, Job, God is not obligated to answer you. God is not obligated to give you a reason for what's happened in your life. He has morally justifiable reasons for all he does and does not owe us a glimpse inside the divine counsel. God has the right, Job, to remain silent. Job 33, verses 8 through 13, Elihu says, Surely you have spoken in my ears and I have heard the sound of your words. You say I'm pure without transgression, I'm clean, there's no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me, he counts me as his enemy, he puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? You see what Elihu responds? He says, Job, he's the creator. You're the creature. Know your role. And as the rock would say, shut your mouth. Right? Elihu, but, but Elihu doesn't leave Job there. He doesn't want him to say, God is God, be quiet. Rather, he goes on to say that even though Job has demanded over and over again that God answer him, and he's been increasingly frustrated that God hasn't, Elihu says, actually, Job, God's been speaking all along. He's been speaking all along, specifically in two ways. He's not been silent. He's been speaking to you by his word, and he's been speaking to you by your suffering. Job 33, verses 14 to 18, For God speaks in one way, and in two, though man does not perceive it. He says, Job, God's been speaking to you. You're just not paying attention. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings, that he may turn man aside from his deed and counsel pride from a man. Conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Now in those days, we know that God spoke in visions and dreams. It was regular. It was common. And God is speaking to his servants in the midst of those things. And he's saying to Job, God is speaking to you in a similar way. But not only is God speaking to you through his word, but he's speaking to you through your suffering itself. Job 33, 19. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones. Now God's purpose for Job in these dreams and in this sickness is not to punish him, but to save him. You see what we read in Job 33? He may turn man aside from his deeds and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit his life from perishing by the sword. So God isn't presented here as some sort of angry judge, but rather as a redeemer, as a savior, as a rescuer, as a wise and great physician. The pain he causes is the pain of a surgeon's scalpel, not the pain of an executioner's whip. Elihu's point is the same as the one C.S. Lewis makes in his book, The Problem of Pain the way God uses our suffering to wake us up. We read Lewis's words. The human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. Now, error and sin both have their property, have this property. 
that the deeper they are, the less their victim suspects their existence. They're masked evil. Pain is unmasked, unmistakable evil. Every man knows that something is wrong when he is being hurt. See, we can rest contentedly in our sins, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And that's what's been happening in Job's life. God has been shouting to him in the midst of his pain as a megaphone to rouse him once again. Paul got that megaphone a number of times in his life and ministry. We read of one such occasion in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. You ever been there? I have. You want to just want to die. Just want to die. Or at least be extensively relieved for a long period of time. Indeed, Paul says, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, it was a megaphone that God was shouting to Paul to rely on him. Wait, Paul was a missionary. He was a front-line, cross-cultural worker risking his life every day for the sake of the gospel, and he needed to learn to rely on God? Yes. Yes. And so, brothers and sisters, when you feel yourself to be utterly burdened beyond your strength, when you despair of life itself, when you feel like you've received the sentence of death in your life, let it be God's megaphone to you to rouse you to rely on him afresh again. That's the first explanation that Elihu offers Job. God is not silent and he is not ignoring you. He's speaking to you in his word and in your suffering. Listen to him. Second reasonable rebuke that Elihu offers is God is not unjust in your suffering and he's not mistreating you. God is not unjust in your suffering and he is not mistreating you. Elihu summarizes Job's complaint in Job 34, verses 5 and 6, where we read, For Job has said, I'm in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. That's Job's argument. I am not a sinner in the active, aggressive, practicing sin way. He knows he's a sinner. That's why... He offered sacrifices in chapter 1 for himself and for his family. He knows he's not a perfect man, but he also knows that he is a blameless man and that there is not anything that he has done to warrant this level of suffering. And certainly at one level, that's absolutely true. But in saying this, in saying, I am in the right, I am in the right, God has treated me this way in spite of my right, what is he saying? God, you're not right. I'm in the right. You're not right. You're not in the right. But, brothers and sisters, we know, don't we? God is not capable of injustice because his character is morally upright and full of integrity, holiness, and perfection. We read in Job 34, verse 12, of a truth God will not do wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Praise the Lord that we have a God who not only does not do wickedness, but will not pervert justice. 
ever. Elihu also responds, reminds Job that God not only is just in his character, but he actually does justice. Job 34, 18 and 19, who says to a king, worthless ones, and to nobles, wicked man, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are, they are all the work of his hands. Job 34, 21 to 23, God not only shows impartiality, but we read, for his eyes are, the, are on the ways of man and he sees all his steps. There is no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves, for God has no need to consider a man further that he should go before God in judgment. It's not like God has to say, wait, hold on, I haven't seen all the evidence yet. Let me gather some more evidence first before I render a judgment. No, he is paying attention, seeing all things at all times, and is behaving impartially and justly toward everyone. Elihu's point is that God knows all the pertinent facts in every case and he will always render a just judgment. Ultimately, what Elihu is trying to do is glorify God by defending his ways against Job's charges of him. He's saying, God has been silent. Elihu says, no, God is not silent. He's saying, God has been unjust. No, God is not unjust. It goes back to chapter 32, verse 3. He's angry with Job because he's justifying himself rather than justifying God. Now, what does it mean to justify God? It means to say, God, you are right. Let God be true and every man a liar. You are right and righteous. But rather, he's justifying himself as opposed to justifying God. And Elihu is trying to help Job to see his need to deal with that. We read in Job 36, again, 6 through 15, he does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he sets them forever and they're exalted. But if they are bound in chains and caught in their transgressions, that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart cherish anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth and their life ends among the cult prostitutes. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ears by adversity. So Elihu is teaching that affliction can make a righteous person sensitive to our remaining sinfulness and help us to hate and renounce it. Suffering opens the ear of the righteous. The psalmist says the same thing. We'll get to it in a few weeks. Psalm 119, verse 71, it was good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Job 36, 13 and 14 describe one group of people for whom suffering results in nothing but destruction. They're called the godless in heart. And yet in chapter 36, verse 15, Elihu describes another group of people that he would include Job in as those whose ears are opened in their affliction and whose experience deliverance by their affliction. They're not the godless. They're not the wicked. They are the righteous. The righteous are afflicted. The righteous are delivered out of their afflictions. They are people like Job. They're upright. They fear God. They turn away from evil. They have a blameless reputation. But yet they suffer too. But the divine purpose is not the same. Elihu's response is, Job, it's better to be a chastened saint than a carefree sinner. Hebrews 12 says the same thing, right? The Lord disciplines 
the one he loves and chastise every son whom he receives. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God has his parental ways with us as his children. And our suffering is not the sign of God's hatred. Quite the contrary, it's the sign of his love. He doesn't discipline those who aren't his. He lets them go their way. So if you see a person getting away with everything and you think, oh, that's the life I would choose, you're misunderstanding God's ways with people. If you look out and say, wow, I wish I had that carefree life. They don't seem to have any problems at all and they don't follow the Lord. Well, the Bible gives us categories for that. They're illegitimate sons. They're not children. They're not in the family. You don't go around spanking people that aren't in your family. Hopefully you don't go around spanking a whole lot of people that are in your family either. But the point is, is you don't go around treating other people's kids like you treat your own kids, right? You recognize there's a distinction there. There's our kids and there's their kids and God has his kids and the world has its kids. And we need to make sure that we're identifying whose kids they are. It's not a punishment for our sins that we suffer, dear ones. It's for the refinement of our righteousness. It's not a preparation for destruction. It's a protection from destruction. C.S. Lewis, again, in Mere Christianity says, when a man turns to Christ and seems to be getting on pretty well in the sense that some of his bad habits are now corrected, he often feels that it would now be natural if things went fairly smoothly. When troubles come along, illnesses, money troubles, new kinds of temptation, he is disappointed. These things he feels might have been necessary to rouse him and make him repent in his old days, but why now? Because God is forcing him on or up to a higher level putting him into situations where he will have to be very much braver or more patient or more loving than he ever dreamed of being before. It seems to us all unnecessary, but that is because we have not yet had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he means to make of us. End quote. Now, I want you to think about this. Those among us that suffer the deepest and that suffer the most and that suffer in the most prolonged ways are often the objects of God's unique affection. Say, what? Yes. Think about Job. Think about Paul. Think about Jesus. When we have brothers and sisters who are deeply, deeply afflicted in our congregation in an ongoing way, what is your immediate conclusion? Oh, Probably getting judged by God, probably getting disciplined by God. No, 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 no. Job would not teach us to think that way. How near to God they must be. How blessed of God they must be. Now, that doesn't mean the suffering is a blessing in and of itself. and that We wouldn't desire the pain to be removed. And if you're here this morning and are uniquely afflicted in an ongoing way that seems to never let up and never, never just one big wave after another crashing over the shores of your life, See it as a sign of God's nearness to you. He loves you enough to pay particular attention to you, where he would let other people just go on in unrighteousness and sin, even some of his own people. Not practicing unrighteousness, but not dealing with them in a direct way in certain ways, but chooses to focus on you for particularly cultivating godliness and righteousness in you. 
That is a unique privilege, brothers and sisters, that the great physician would spend his time on us in those ways. So the three friends have all been wrong. Suffering is not the proof of wickedness. And Job had been wrong. Suffering is not the proof that God doesn't care. Number three, last point, Elihu's remaining relevance. What lessons do we learn from Elihu here in these chapters? I'm just going to focus on one here, and that's this. Because I think we need this word in order to balance out the previous sermons of the things we've seen. While it is true, brothers and sisters, that we need friends in our suffering, we need their presence, we need their sympathy, we need their compassion, like Job's friends give him in the opening of the book, that's not all we need from our friends. We also need them to confront us when our attitudes are starting to go astray. One particular danger that this section of Job teaches us is that in our suffering, we have a proneness to mischaracterize God. While sin is often not the cause of our suffering, suffering can often cause us to sin. While Job's friends thought that Job needed to repent for his sin that caused his sufferings, Elihu's appeal is that Job needs to repent for the sinful responses to his suffering. So in our efforts to be present, sympathetic friends to those who are suffering, we must not allow our compassion to take an unbiblical form. Namely, to view timely, pastoral, kind confrontation, especially regarding our hard thoughts of God and our suffering, to be inconsistent with compassion. It is not inconsistent with compassion to lovingly confront a brother or sister in their attitudes about God. It's an expression of compassion. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of the enemy. Do you have an Elihu in your life? Someone who's willing to challenge and confront you when you're wrong? Maybe it's your spouse. Do you get needlessly upset anytime your spouse corrects something about you? Does that just cause you to bristle? Just punch back? Just say something mean? They're just trying to be helpful. Okay? Most of the time. If they're, if they're seeking to love you and be godly, willing to challenge you, willing to confront you when you're wrong, receive them as a great gift. And do you have the grace the wisdom, the tact, the courage. It requires all of that to serve as an Elihu in someone else's life. I'll tell you, it takes sanctification, brothers and sisters, to walk alongside someone suffering and not bludgeon them, but carefully walk them through patiently what they are understanding and what they are experiencing. It requires great wisdom. It requires great tact. It requires great self-control. This is not for the carnal Christians of the world to do, as if there was such a thing. I'm using it in the 1 Corinthians 3 sense. The worldly, naturally kind of inclined impulses of us. We need great grace to be able to do this for and with each other because it requires us to suspend judgment, to be unbiased, to say hard things sometimes, but to do it in the right spirit. It's very challenging. But God calls us to be up to that task's and equips us to do that task. 
We need to grow in playing the part of Elihu for others and receiving words from Elihu's in our own lives. That's what we're called to do as a church family. Romans 15, 14, I myself am satisfied about you, Paul says to the Romans, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Now that's a kind translation. The word is admonish. It includes instruction. It includes, hey, go this direction, but it also includes don't go that direction. And how will we respond when we're on the other end of an Elihu rebuke? Will we be sulky children, locking ourselves away in our room, building up resentment toward God and others for the way they're treating us, refusing to open the door in response to God's knocking? Or will we be trusting children who will, yes, express our hurt and our pain and even sometimes raise our voices in perplexity, but who nevertheless will yield to our loving Father's refining fire? How do we get there? How do we get that heart? There's only one way. By drawing near to your greater Elihu. Jesus. Jesus is the greater Elihu who confronts us with our sin, but unlike Elihu, goes even further. Not just confronting us in our sin, but actually suffering for it. So that in all of our suffering we would know the nearness of his grace. Hebrews 2, verses 10 to 18, paint this so vividly for us. For it was fitting that he, that is Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So God, according to his plan, in bringing us to glory, brings his son into suffering to become the founder of our salvation. He continues, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. See, Jesus not only enters into our suffering to provide atonement for us in our sin, but also to provide solidarity with us. He is now not just our Savior, but our brother, our true friend, our true Elihu. The writer continues, Since therefore the children, that is the children of God, us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Is that any among us this morning? Any of us need to hear that verse? That's the gospel, friends. Are you afraid of dying? Have you been subject all life long to the fear of death? It used to terrorize me. I experienced some of what Job 33, the terrors of dreams of death in my childhood, scared me to death. And yet, here we're told how to escape all of that. The son comes and partakes of our flesh and blood. He becomes a man. He lives in our place that through death he might destroy the works of the devil, the one who has the power of death. And through our trust in him, he would free us from the fear of death. Some of us need to hear that this morning. Some of us need to embrace that this morning. Embrace that Jesus. Embrace that Christ. 
the writer concludes, for surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And that is how we are able to receive and be the Elihu's for each other and receive Elihu-like rebuke from each other. Because of verse 18, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Christ supplies his help to us in the midst of our suffering. He doesn't just atone for our sins and then say, see you in heaven, hope you make it all right. No, he walks alongside us every moment through every step of our suffering, fellowshipping with us as brothers. This is why Paul said in Philippians 3, this is the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul said, when I suffer, I don't suffer alone. I suffer in, for, and with Jesus. It all has purpose. It all has meaning. It's all going somewhere. It's because I'm in union with him. Cross, crown. He had the cross. He got the crown. We get the cross now. We'll get the crown then. But we got to carry the cross now. And that cross is painful. And it's hard to pick up some days. But it is producing in us likeness to Jesus, nearness to Jesus, and grace flowing into our souls to make us more like Jesus. May the Lord bless his word to us in that way and equip us to be that way for and with each other. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the words of Job. Thank you for this book that teaches us in all of its mysterious complexity how to navigate and function under suffering. Lord, I know and I think I speak for many of us as brothers and sisters here, suffering catches us so off guard sometimes. And Peter says, I don't want you to be surprised by this fiery trial. I don't want you to think this is strange. But Lord, we confess that all too often we think it's strange. We think we are being singled out or mistreated. But Lord, help us to remember that you are not silent in our suffering and you are not unjust in our suffering. You are our hope. You are our rock. You are our refuge. And you are our redeemer. May we draw near to you in times of need, knowing that you are the sufficient Savior for us. Lord Jesus, you have been tempted in all points just as we are, yet without sin. And therefore, you are able to help us who are being tempted, both in the ultimate sense. Thank you that you weren't, you were without sin so that you could be our Savior. But also in the immediate present sense, you are with us, always available at the throne of grace to dispense mercy and where we can find help in every time of need. Lead us there continually. Help us to lead each other there regularly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.